1972, graduate student Francine Patterson began to teach an infant gorilla American Sign Language as part of a developmental psychology project. She had no idea that the subject of her PhD thesis was destined for international fame. Project Coco, which ran until the gorilla's death at the age of 46, revealed a side of gorillas that most of the general public had never seen before, one that was curious, intelligent, and compassionate. This project is also an incredible example of non-human language learning. According to the Gorilla Foundation, 30-year-old Coco was able to produce more than 1,000 ASL signs and can recognize almost twice as many spoken words. She even created word combinations that had not been taught to her. Spoken language and speech are often thought to be unique to humans, but examples like Coco demonstrate that animals are capable of certain components of speech. Auditory learning, such as Coco's ability to recognize spoken words, is an element of spoken language found across the animal kingdom. By contrast, vocal learning, which refers to the ability to imitate sounds and make new ones based on sounds learned previously, is really rare. Only a handful of non-human animals are good vocal learners. The best-known examples are parrots and songbirds. Our guest for today's episode is Dr. Eric Jarvis, a professor at the Rockefeller University who studies the neural and genetic mechanisms of vocal learning in animals. In his research, Eric compares the brain structures of song-learning birds to those in humans to understand how the vocal learning pathway may have evolved. One of the major steps that occurred in the human brain and the songbird, parrot, and so forth is that a new brain pathway emerged. Or let's say if it's a very rudimentary one in some species, it became greatly enhanced. Uh, and this brain pathway, we think, uh, developed out of an ancient motor learning pathway that controls learning how to move. Okay? And, this, and we think that it evolved by a duplication of that old pathway. Instead of being hooked up to the hands, muscles, it's now hooked up to the muscles that control the larynx. All right, uh, and the jaws, and so forth. And that movement brain pathway is now controlling movement of those muscles to produce learned sounds. Today we talk with Eric about how vocal learning develops and functions, the neural structures that enable speech, and the evolution of human language. And a quick note, unfortunately I wasn't able to be there for the interview, so Marty will be the only one talking with Eric during this episode. But don't worry about it, I'm sure he did fine without me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. So let's go ahead and, and jump into to vocal learning and, and the things, you know, you're, you're one of the many things that your lab is working on. Um, and, and thanks again for, for joining us on the show. We're going to focus initially on this 2019 paper that you had in science on the evolution of vocal learning and spoken language. But we really, I want to use that as kind of a launching point into a broader conversation about the evolution of vocal learning and the uniqueness of human language relative to the other types of, of vocal things that, that life on earth does. Um, so let's start slowly because this is neuroscience and um, that tends to be pretty gnarly. We like gnarly on this show, so we're not going to run scared from gnarly, but let's go slowly to keep as many people on board as we can. A major premise of that paper is that components of spoken language are fairly common among species. And the key part, vocal learning, is rare, but let's go with those components first. So one of them is the ability to learn and remember novel sound associations. Give us an example and, and what's that about? Yeah, so that ability we call auditory learning. Uh, and a good example that I like to use is with your pet animals. Uh, you can teach a dog to learn how to understand the sound sit in English, 
Osawati in Japanese, Siente Se in Spanish, all kinds of languages, or even whole human sentences like fetch the ball, you know, go get the newspaper, is Sam here? You know, things like that. So a dog actually can understand lots of human speech words, and you can teach other animals to do that as well, like elephants or circus animals, but you can't get them to say it. Uh, so that distinction uh, or that ability is what we call auditory learning, or some people call it comprehension learning. Now, are there vertebrates, especially terrestrial vertebrates, because, you know, getting fish to understand our vocalizations, that's its own challenge. We won't go there. Right. But are there vertebrates that we know that can't do this or that have an especially difficult time learning? Yeah, I, 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 it is the case where people have tried to take auditory tasks and teach different species. Uh, and surprisingly, some have argued that our closest relatives, non-human primates, are kind of bad at it. <laughs> but still, even then, they're better at that than the actual production of the sounds. So, so there's a, um, a, a, a famous gorilla, Coco. Um, who understand uh, human words, like 2,000 actually, which is actually quite remarkable. So it's better than many other primates uh, in this gorilla. But uh, uh, others that can't, I don't know if anybody's taken a lizard, right, <laughs> and, and tried to even try that to see if you can get them to understand human speech sounds yeah. You know, through playbacks, through a speaker or whatever. That sounds like a great graduate student experiment. We've got plenty of little anoles running around campus here. Maybe, maybe we'll try right. this. <laughs> so I just think it needs to be tried, and then we can, I can give you that answer. But uh, unfortunately, uh, in, like in all walks of life, even in science, people make big assumptions, and so they don't even try it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you're, you're sequencing all of the vertebrates before you do all, all organisms, and uh, that's no small task. There's a lot of diversity out there. It's hard to, to, to know that for everybody. Okay, so part two, after the learning and remembering um, novel sound associations, part two is the ability to learn and produce, produce innate or learned sounds in unfamiliar context. So what's that one? Ah, so, so this, you're talking about what we call vocal usage learning, all right? It's, it's whether or not the sounds you produce are innate or learned, right? You can learn when to produce those sounds. Uh, and the famous example of what happens in the wild is uh, vervet monkeys from the uh, work of Seifarth and Cheney. These monkeys, right, when they're born or, you know, they're infants, uh, they hear all kinds of sounds from their conspecific, you know, their siblings, their parents, their uncles, and so forth. Uh, and the sounds that they're hearing are innately produced sounds from these other monkeys. But over time, they learn that they should produce this innate alarm call to an eagle in the sky or a snake on the ground and not to some tree or some person. So they learn the meaning of the sound, okay, that they're hearing and produce but they don't actually learn to change the cuckoo's structure. So we call that vocal usage learning. Okay, and that's the same thing as a dog learning to bark when you know, you're going for his favorite treat. That's a very good example, yes. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. All right, so part three is the ability to imitate sound, and that's the rarest form um, as we know it. You know, We've only looked in so many species as we just talked about for the other item. Humans, cetaceans, pinnipeds, bats, elephants, songbirds, hummingbirds, and parrots can do this did i leave out anybody or is nope that... you got it F okay. five mammal groups three bird groups okay yes give us some examples here because the i mean in some sense like parrots imitating that's famous i don't think we need to to recount you know the african grays and all of the amazing examples of, of parrot imitation but elephants imitating sound what's 
how does that work? Yeah, so they, they, there's some experiments showing that um, you know, some African elephants were imitating uh, vocalizations of some Asian elephants that were together uh, that they never had encountered. There, there are other cases, there have been some examples where an elephant actually produces uh, uh, a human speech sounds. But in this case, I won't say it's, it's the same pure type of vocal learning we humans and the songbirds go through. What they're doing is putting their trunk in their mouth and moving their lips, okay, with their trunk. Wow. In order, in, you know, and their jaw in order to modulate the sounds uh, that uh, they hear in human speech. So that's a type of vocal learning, uh, not quite using the larynx in the same way. But nevertheless, there, there are other sounds of one species that imitates another. Wow. What's, why? I mean, what, what would, is there any context, anything special about an elephant's ecology that would make sense of that behavior? No. Yeah. The, the, the reason why, you know, it's like, yeah, what's, what is it about these eight groups of species, right, that they have it and all the others don't, uh, so far as we know. And uh, there are many hypotheses out there. And the one, my favorite that, that I came up with is that uh, vocal learning would naturally evolve. I think sexual selection is there to selecting it, like for mating. The more varied the sounds you produce, the more attractive you can sound. And, and to get variety of sounds, the best way to do that is have learning of the sounds. Uh, but so, so let's say that's, that's natural selection selecting for it, right? What's selecting against it, I think, is predators. Uh, so that the uh, more varied the sounds that you make out there in the wild, the more likely you'll be recognized by predators as well, not by your own conspecifics, and you'll be eaten. So that then led to the prediction, well, then that means the species that uh, evolve vocal learning will be at, near or at the top of the food chain. And this is the case for humans. It's the case for elephants and also cetaceans like whales and dolphins. In general, I mean, that suggests that just big things and they, they sort of get to that body size refugium where nobody, no animal is going to get a hippopotamus down its, its throat, right? But we don't, we don't have, I mean, sort of, is there evidence that the disproportionately large animals are special this way? Or is this, again, one of those examples where people haven't asked about imitation in rhinos or hippos or giraffes or... Well, well you, you don't have to be big to be uh, uh, in the top of the food chain. You, you have to be also smart. You know, uh, uh, so humans aren't the biggest animals out there, but, uh, that are, but we have animals that are bigger than us that are, aren't vocal learners. You know, so, so we could be attacking ourselves. We could be attacking those vocal learners when we hear them. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So another group are bats, right? And they, they are not big. All right, but they actually produce their learned sounds in the ultrasonic range where many other species don't hear them. And then it turns out uh, when we did a bird phylogeny, we found out that parrots and songbirds are descended from apex predator birds that were quite large. Uh, so, we, so it's only hummingbirds that's the oddball out. Okay, okay, well that makes sense. So their ancestor maybe evolved this when they had this sort of predatory lifestyle and right. then secondarily, that's okay, right. okay. That makes sense. I've got to go back to this bats, though, because it's, it's the same question I was asking about the elephants. What are the bats imitating, ultrasonic or otherwise? How does that work? Yeah, so, so they, they have these long sequences of vocalizations that kind of are like songbird songs uh, that they use to communicate with each other or mate. Uh, the, the, it's not as well studied in bats as it is in songbirds or humans, as you can imagine, right? or dolphins, but... Um, but we think they're using it for both mating 
context as well as perhaps some type of form of other abstract communication, although it's, it's, it's a, it's a hand-waving hypothesis, that last statement I said, uh, but more has to be studied. Okay, okay. And they are, and some of them are, are fairly social species, and I think there's some other things, some other elements of sociality that I think you, you there, there's evidence out there to suggest that plays a role. Well, it turns out that all vocal learners, or most of them, are actually more social on average than other species. It doesn't mean that if you're social, you become a vocal learner, but it makes sense because you're, you're, you're producing learned sounds and you're using it for communication. Okay. All right. The last one, and then we're, we're going to move into vocal learning specifically in, in uh, a direction of, of human language. Mockingbirds. Yes. They, I mean, there aren't very many other examples besides the parrots of organisms that don't, I mean, just imitate the most bizarre things that have so little obviously to do with what, why, why, why did they do that? And is there anything special about their brains that sort of underpins? Yeah. So I think the, the mockingbirds are the, what could be going on there, I think it comes from a theory that Irene Pepperberg once put out for parrots. There are some like African greys out in the wild. They're imitating all these different sounds. And we have examples of this in songbirds, like the mockingbird. And one hypothesis is that um, they're stealing sounds from the environment. They're stealing sounds from the other species, copying them so they're not being innovative themselves, right? And by, by increasing their repertoire of different sounds, they're sounding more attractive, more intelligent, all right, to attract the opposite sex. Do we know that female mockingbirds prefer the, the males that sound like car horns and screen doors and that kind of thing? We know in general amongst songbirds that have been studied, not showing mockingbirds in particular, but that the females uh, do prefer males that have a bigger repertoire. Okay, okay. So there you go. There's a dissertation waiting for someone that right, uh, is right. industrious enough to want to work on mockingbirds. It, it actually end up being a very difficult species to study. They're pretty sharp, quite intelligent as uh, passerines go. So let's move into the, the vocal learning side of thing. Um, I mean, we, we put that on a pedestal as one of the, the unique traits of this, this group of organisms. But there's a lot of different ideas about what had to happen neuroanatomically and neurophysiologically to, to have that happen. This is the crux, a large portion of your science paper, and we probably can't go through all of those many pathways. So I'm just going to ask you to sort of summarize what's the best way of thinking about that right now? What are the pieces, the underlying sort of mechanisms that, that allow for vocal learning? So I'll give you that answer, plus go swing back to the Mockingbird, because you asked what's different in their brains. So um, I'm now seeing this some, somewhat more as a continuum, but uh, there are steps along the way. One of the major steps that occurred in the human brain and the songbird, parrot, and so forth, uh, is that a new brain pathway emerged or let's say if it's a very rudimentary one in some species, it became greatly enhanced. Uh, and this brain pathway, we think, uh, developed out of an ancient motor learning pathway that controls learning how to move, okay? And, this, and we think that it evolved by a duplication of that old pathway. Instead of being hooked up to the hands, muscles, it's now hooked up to the muscles that control the larynx. Okay. All right, uh, and the jaws and so forth. And that movement brain pathway is now controlling movement of those muscles to produce learned sounds. And so once, once that brain pathway evolves, uh, and it's a whole circuit, right, uh, then it can differentiate and diverge in different species to allow some species to have a bigger repertoire of learned sounds and some more limited. 
And there are two differences there that we're seeing that make that difference. Like we think in a mockingbird, it's certain genes, protein products of those genes, that allow the neurons to break and make more connections more rapidly. All right? So allowing them to form new memories of how to produce new sounds throughout life more than other species. So you don't change, you don't change the overall brain circuit. You just change how the neurons talk to each other. Right? Then, then there's a second way of actually enhancing a vocal learning abilities once you have it. In the parrots and the humans, we're seeing, particularly in the parrots, where you can study them better, that they have an extra brain pathway, a vocal learning circuit. So they have a, a vocal learning circuit inside of another vocal learning circuit. Uh, and we think the, the, what we call the shell one is giving them more advanced abilities to produce human speech sounds uh, and other kinds of sounds, stealing sounds from the environment than what we see even in the mockingbird. Wow, there's so much to, um, to unpack here. Let's, let's just start with that because it's fresh. So is the, the parrot system, the sort of um, pathway within a pathway, is that giving them the ability to produce a lot of different sounds? Is it, is it adding on to what was there, making more sophisticated what was there? Yeah. So, so what we think happened there is that the, what we call the core song system in the parrot, uh, in the brain, right? Its genes and its neural connections is very similar to what we see in songbirds and hummingbirds. So we think, we think that evolved first in a convergent manner with the songbirds and the hummingbirds. And then from that core, we think it, it replicated itself and evolved the shell, right? And the shell brain regions are bigger in species that have more advanced abilities to imitate human speech. And the connectivity is different. It's somewhat similar, but it has some differences. It's more interconnected in the brain rather than to the muscles itself. So we think this shell system is allowing the parrots to continue to imitate even more complex sounds throughout life. This is, this is neat. I mean, over and over again, across evolutionary biology, we're sort of seeing this, there's some system is played around with in a different way. A sort of there's a toolkit that is elaborated, right? That's right. So it, it's interesting uh, in that way. But there's a, a bit of a dissonance here, at least it is in my head right now, that, that I need you to help me understand. These pathways evolved separately they're, they're independent, right, in mammal, at least in mammals and birds. So that doesn't really work with what we're talking about, or, or does it? How do you make sense of that? Yeah, it's independent evolution. It's quite remarkable. And when we first came up with these discoveries, you know, some religious groups, you know, did, you know, they uh, get a hold of our, our information because, you know, it made the popular press. And they put our figures and so forth from our papers in their religious texts, you know, saying this this looks like intelligent design, but you just can't get a similar result like this over you know, 65 to 300 million years of evolution. But I think the answer lies in, in not intelligent design, but in uh, convergent evolution can be quite remarkable, like with the evolution of wings. So you got bats, ancient flying dinosaurs, and birds. They all evolved the wings from the upper limbs, right? And what caused that is that when you put your body horizontal in the sky, right? The center of gravity, um, the best place to evolve wings is near the upper limbs because that's where the center of gravity is at, near the center of gravity, between the upper limbs and the center of the body. You're not going to evolve one on the head on the foot. It's just physically not reasonable. 
So the environment is selecting for certain physical structures to work with it. I argue the brain is under the same uh, physical uh, you know, selection. So instead of getting wings from the upper arms, you're getting a spoken language circuit from an ancient motor learning pathway that controls movement. This sort of suggests too that this is easy to evolve, right? I mean, if you get convergence with such separation, maybe, maybe it's really not that hard. It happened multiple times. That's right. I, and I predict another half a million years from now, s some other species or, you know, let's say some reptile or some bird or some rat, you know, evolves, uh, can evolve vocal learning. I bet you I can predict what that brain circuit's going to look like. And so, so yeah, so I think it's, it's easier than, than we think. And that's why I think it's really the predators are preventing it from happening more often, uh, which means we, sh we humans maybe also, if we get, if we, if we understand the toolkit better, maybe we can replicate this in another species. Right. Yeah, I think we're going to get there. That's some <laughs> almost science fiction sort of things that, that you guys are, are, are trying, to do, trying to do right now. Um, I want to try to tie this together and then, then get into human language. And you've a couple of times mentioned this duplication idea. And, and to use your analogy with, with um, the position of the wings and the evolution of flight, I mean, that is a morphological innovation that by no means was an easy thing to evolve, but it just almost intuitively seems to me like a simpler thing to evolve than elaborate neuromuscular connections. I mean, con convince me that that's not crazy, or maybe can you be more specific about what we know or what you expect about the molecular pathway by which this duplication happened? Yeah. By the way, with the, with the evolution of flight, you do need some changes in the brain to control the, the, the muscle movements. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's utilizing uh, the same brain pathway that controls the arms and the hands. That same brain pathway is now controlling the flight, right? So it's usurped for a new purpose. Uh, in this case, we're talking about the, the addition of a new brain pathway, right, from, from an old one, being copied from an old one. So, so yeah, what I think is probably, what, what makes it seem complex to me is not the actual brain circuit itself. Uh, now that I, I know what it kind of looks like, it looks like a motor learning circuit, uh, which has been around millions of years, but now you connect it to the sound organs, right? Um, so how do you get that first circuit to begin with, the circuit that controls walking, that controls signing with the hands and so forth? How do you get that in the first place? To me, that's, what, that's what's complex. Uh, and, um, you know, once you get it, then you can copy it multiple times over and over again and control different movements. Yeah, yeah. Do, do we have examples, other examples of the sort of duplication of these neural modules sort of in, put into, into work for different purposes that happened before? Um, I'll give a clue. We're writing up a paper on woodpeckers now. <laughs> okay, yeah. You don't want to steal too much, does <laughs> um, Okay, so let's... Let's Eric, let's talk a little bit about human language. And I think um, this is a bit terrifying to me because I, I know nothing about this, but I think we have to dis describe and list and maybe even define some of these terms that distinguish human language from other vocalizations. Um, you and, and many others, this is something that's been, been talked about for a long time, of course. The spoken language consists of a bunch of different components like semantics and syntax and, and other things like that. Can Can you sort of summarize what's special about human language that distinguishes it from other vocal learning? Yeah. 
Yeah, and this this was sort of the the mission of this paper I wrote in 2019 in Science Magazine, which was really trying to take the evidence and distill it down to the basic facts without, let's say, over-interpretation or assumptions that you that you, it's hard to validate. So the first thing we got to get right is the definitions of the behavior. And uh, I struggle with finding a, a biological basis, okay, in the brain or the body of a distinction between speech and spoken language or lang speech and language in general. Uh, uh, th there's this distinction in the field, but if you look in the brain, right, uh, at the human brain and the analogies of those regions with songbirds, you find that the brain regions that we say are active during speech are the same brain regions that are active when we're processing and, or producing uh, language, or spoken language to be uh, particular. So that's one thing we had to get over, right? Uh, that, that, that artificial distinction, and even the semantics and the grammar and so forth, these are all behavioral terms without people mapping them to biological basis yet. So you have to map it to the biology, and if it doesn't map to the biology, then I question the actual definition in, in, the, uh, in the field, whether it's linguistics or some other field. All right, so now, getting to the second part of your question, taking, taking that, that process of how I go about doing this, now I ask the question, what is special about spoken language? All right. And there are many theories out there. One of them is that uh, you need a bigger brain. You need a bigger circuit. Everybody has it's just bigger in humans. I, and it is true, human brains are bigger in some ways, you know, relative to our body than many other species. But I don't think that's the only thing, right? Uh, the other is uh, the, the, it's a difference in the presence or absence of a brain region or brain circuit. This, there, there is support for. And it's this vocal learning circuit is really what makes the big difference, the presence or absence, right? And that vocal learning circuit is the same as the spoken language circuit. They're one of the same. Another theory is that there's a separate language module in the brain that controls speech circuits, auditory learning circuits, uh, sign, you know, hand circuits for signing and so forth. I don't see any evidence in the field that I'm convinced of that there's a separate language module. This language module was a, I mean, it's a, it's a central, it's a major idea, right? And sort of people that think about um, the sort of evolution and, and the, the mechanics of, of human language. And it's, as I understand it, again, I'm very naive on this front. It's something about the capacity to internalize. What, what, what does that mean? I mean, how, so I think for me to understand what you're saying, that there's no evidence, can you help me understand what the internalize would mean and how you're not seeing it? Yeah, so let's say I don't think the evidence is strong, right? Uh, and, and this, uh, and just to give credit, this comes mostly from the linguistic community, Chomsky and others, uh, of this language module. Uh, and yeah, this internalization, this internal thinking and so forth. Uh, the, the idea is there is an internal brain circuit that has your inner speech, let's call that, right? That then tells the speech pathway how to produce it. it this region of the brain or circuit of the brain has the, all the algorithms necessary for grammar and so forth and syntax. But when you look at carefully done MRI research, you know, functional MRI, or physiology research, like from Eddie Chang's group at UCSF, uh, what, I, what I'm seeing from the literature, that I, the evidence that I trust most, is that when you have internal speech, when you're thinking to yourself and not actually producing the sounds, it's the same brain circuit that's being used that actually produces the sounds. It's not a separate 
language module elsewhere in the brain. It's the same laryngeal motor cortex, Broca's area, and so forth. And what's not happening is that that circuit is being inhibited from the muscles from moving. Uh, and we see this in songbirds. Songbirds, you know, you'll find during sleep that, you know, Dan Margulish's work finds that the brain regions fire neural activity of songs that they sang earlier in the day without the actual muscles moving. <laughs> wow. Like they're, like they're dreaming about yeah. sleep. In, in, internal song in the songbird brain. So I'm, I'm trying to understand, it maybe it almost seems like semantics because in one sense, it seems like you're saying that internalization happens, but it's not in some special place. It's in the same place that if it wasn't, you know, the signals weren't being prevented from becoming vocalizations, you could call it internalization? That's right. That's right. Yeah, okay. Okay. And, and what, I, what I think is happening here that I th more research needs to be done to really prove this is the mechanism. Uh, but what I think ha happening in many cases, and it's interesting if there's differences in vocal learners and non-learners, is that the speech brain pathway is speaking. So the motor circuits is speaking inside your head, right? And who's listening? It's your auditory circuit that involves auditory learning is listening to your speech brain pathway talk, right? And so you're processing your sounds in your head for what one brain region is saying to the other. Now, the non-vocal learners have either rudimentary or no circuit at all, so they just have the auditory region. So you wonder how a dog can talk to itself because it doesn't have the talking part, right? So it must have some type of internalization in the auditory region, but probably not as sophisticated as the vocal learners. Wow. Okay. Okay. I mean, there's some examples. Um, one of the things, so Art and I have you know, a lot of conversations before we, we do the interviews. And one of the things that really blew him away, and you've alluded to it already, but this may be a really great place to, to drive home the idea, that you, you say that spoken and sign language are the same as speech and signing. That's right. That's right. Yes. Okay, I mean, I think you've done it, but can, can you say a little bit more about, about how that works? That just sounds so mysterious. Yeah, just like I say, this distinction between um, speech and spoken language, I think the, the, it's artificial as, as this distinction between sign and sign language as well. All right? And um, the mechanism there, there, there's, you know, I've seen two schools of thought out there. One is that it's this language module uh, or, you know, domain general, also called circuits, are being used to, the algorithms are there for both signing and speech. And, and these, al these algorithms in this language module, this domain general circuit, is sending it to the hand regions of the brain or to the laryngeal regions of the brain for the, for the speech. But if, I think the, the data that I, that I see more that, well, put it this way, I think they're parallel circuits. They're next to each other and they're hard to see. The hand region in the motor cortex is directly adjacent to the laryngeal motor cortex for speech. And with MRI data, it's sometimes hard to distinguish between the two. With physiology, when you actually put electrodes in a patient's brain, because this is very rarely done, right? You'll see that, I won't say they're totally distinct, but there is a distinction there that you can have more firing in this part of the cortex due to hand movements versus this part of the cortex due to speech. And that part of the cortex that's controlling hand movements is also part of the sign language. And the adjacent circuit having some of the same algorithms is, all, is part of the speech circuit. That's amazing. And, you know, 
the organisms that we use to study these things, birds will vocalize and it's fine, but oftentimes we want to use mice and mice don't really vocalize in the same way for the same reasons as we do. But, but some of the work that, that you and others have done with actual, you know, manual dexterity being the output, I mean, that, that's just remarkable and reinforcing the, the points that you're making, right? Yes, yes. And, and we're getting into mice uh, 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 circuits uh, for, for the one main purpose is we kind of knew in advance if we were going to find, you know, that the, that the behavior and the neural circuitry for humans and songbirds are convergent for learned sounds, uh, what about the underlying genes? And we, we actually did discover that uh, some of the underlying genes that are special in their function in speech circuits in humans and song circuits in birds are convergent in their regulation, up or down regulation, you know, higher or lower expression compared to non-speech circuits. And so what we'd like to do now is take these, the human versions of these genes and manipulate them in the mouse brain to see if we can induce a similar like circuitry in the mouse brain as humans. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but, but, but to do that, you need to actually characterize the mouse circuit to begin with, you know, and, lo and lots of us assume that it's a neat circuit, but no one actually showed that. And it, and it turns out that it is, it is, but it's not as rudimentary as people once thought. There's, a, there's actually a rudimentary circuit there we see in the mouse brain as what we see in songbirds and humans is just more advanced in humans. Um, we probably don't want to drill down on this too much, but um, you know, given my own research biases, it's just the transcriptomic underpinnings of all of these things are, are really neat. Are there, I mean, what are a few of the genes that you're working on? And is it sort of a, a small subset that seems to be the, the movers and shakers, or is it this constellation of minimal effects from lots of things? Well, well, I guess not surprising, these are traits that involve multiple genes. And so we did find multiple genes, you know, several hundred, that differ inside the speech areas versus outside of them. Uh, and of those several hundred uh, in one brain region, roughly 50 to 70 are convergent in their, in their specialization between humans and songbirds and parrots and hummingbirds. So four independent lineages, including human, evolved uh, 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 50 genes or so that are, are similar in their, in their regulation. And so we think those are the important ones, right? And what are they? Getting to your question is that most of them are involved in neural connectivity, right? Forming uh, connections in the brain uh, uh, and, and neural migration, how neurons migrate from one brain area to another during development. Uh, a subset of them are involved in neural protection, that is protecting cells from dying. And I think that's the case because when we humans and these other vocal learning species evolve this ability of imitating sounds, we use it a lot. We use that brain circuit a lot to talk a lot. We talk a lot more than other primates. And by using those brain circuits a lot, you've got to get rid of the, the waste products in your neurons so you can keep talking. All right. And the third category of genes uh, or, or functions of these genes is neuroplasticity, uh, the ability to, to modify the, the connections of the neurons more so than in other circuits. And so what we're doing is we're trying to take those genes that are function in making novel connections or different kinds of connections in the speech circuits and, and, and put them in the mouse brain. And a colleague, uh, uh, you know, who's now a colleague of mine, uh, Yoshida Yutaka, who's now at the Burke Neurological Institute in upstate New York, uh, they, their lab actually found 
a difference not just in speech areas, but a difference in the entire motor cortex of humans of some other gene involved in neural connectivity, uh, and that they think is controlling connectivity for the hands, right? And they put the human version of that gene, or basically turned it off, because in the human brain, it's turned off. Uh, and some of these other genes we find for the speech circuits are turned off. And, and so you gain a function. By turning off the gene, this new connection can now form. And this connection from the cortex to the motor neurons in the spinal cord that control the hands, they got that connection to form, and these mice now can have greater manual dexterity with their fingers, with the human version of the gene, by turning off the, this neural connectivity gene. So we're trying that same thing in the speech circuits. Maybe, maybe it'll be difficult to get them to, to speak, you know, to use human words, but perhaps they could play the piano or, you know, a violin <laughs> or something like that. Right, right. Okay, so let's zoom out a little bit, and um, there's there's a couple of points that you made in the 2019 paper that you know we have to save time for. They just blew me away. I mean, some some of them are speculative, but that's some of my favorite things. So um, you you talk a lot in the paper, and we've discussed it about the sort of continuous evolution of of these traits eventually leading to human language, and that towards the end of the paper led you to speculate about the ancestor, the vertebrate ancestor from which everything was derived. Um, what, what do you think that was? What, what did this thing look like? Presumably, this was an aquatic organism, and living in the water is going to have pretty big implications on, you know, vocalization. Yes, yes. Uh, and by the way, in full disclosure, when there, some of the reviewers of that paper said, oh, my goodness, this is so speculative. But uh, for some of these things, not that particular one, but they... Uh, the, and uh, the editor fortunately let me publish what I'd like to say. So, so if anybody else out there thinks it's heavily speculation, I, I don't mind. Uh, I do look up a lot of evidence in the literature to, uh, and our own work to uh, come up with these ideas. It's, they don't just come out of the blue. Uh, so so the, the, the common ancestor of all vertebrates is uh, considered an amniote. Uh, so yes, a, a, a water-living creature could have been water and you know, land, but I don't think it really matters whether it's water or land, or both, a uh, living animal, uh, <clears throat> is that the, there's this basic forebrain circuit that I think it's underappreciated in neuroscience that I think permeates all vertebrate brains, right? That involves, uh, I know it's getting a little detailed here, but let's say it involves three main components, right? The cortex, uh, what we call neocortex, and I don't think it's really new, right? So I think we should get rid of the word new. Uh, the cortex that we see in humans and so forth, um, and the part below that, the basal ganglia, which is like affected in Parkinson's disease uh, and some other movement disorders, and the thalamus. Okay, these three regions are all communicating with each other in loops and different kinds of uh, feedback circuits and so forth. And that basic plan, once you have that basic plan, uh, then I think you can get complex behaviors that you get from the vertebrate brain, whether they be a fish, a reptile, or a human. And I think if you can figure out that basic algorithm, then you can put it into a computer and you'll probably get all kinds of interesting uh, behaviors out of it. Uh, and so this is, it's that underlying substrate, that underlying connectivity motif of these three major subdivisions of the brain uh, out of which the spoken language circuits are evolving. Does that help? 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that that makes some sense, and and maybe some of this is coming from the the enduring frustration of certain things in biology without time machines we're never going to know. I mean, are there paleontological methods that you can take to try to get some traction on these ideas, or is it down to computer simulations? Yeah, it's it's more on the simulation side, but also you can actually take some genes and you can manipulate them in ways to, so like from our vertebrate genomes project, okay, once we have enough species sequenced at the tips of the leaves of the tree, we, we can take that genome sequence and infer the genome of the common ancestor of all vertebrates, all right? And so we can kind of recreate in silico what that sequence looked like. And then we can take some of those genes from the ancient vertebrate ancestor and replace them in a current species and ask, okay, how does the brain develop now? Or, you know, or, or in that genetically modified animal that you're trying to recreate. And there are groups that are waiting for us to finish up these high-quality genomes because they want to create the common dinosaur ancestor of birds and other dinosaurs. So they can take a chicken, right, and uh, take some of these inferred dinosaur genes and put them in a chicken egg and make it revert it more back to what its dinosaur ancestor looked like. So there, so there are some people waiting for that to happen, all right? Uh, but uh, so, so, so far now it's theory than actual practice. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have to, um, we're going to have to have you back on to talk about this one. There's so much in, in the show um, that we do talk about that would be really fun to, to explore those sorts of things. I'm biting my tongue not to go <laughs> off at all I'll sorts be, of... I'll be happy to be back. <laughs> let's, let's do that. But um, let's do a couple more things, and I'll give you a chance to say things that we didn't hit. Um, about how long ago did modern languages in humans evolve, and what do you... Do we have a sense of what those sounded like? Yeah, it's, it's a question that, it's one of those other, other kind of questions in evolution where it's hard to actually know the answer. Like, we, we, we have good inferences, like, to when mammals and birds separated, you know, or their last common ancestor diverged. You know, decent dating and fossil evidence. Uh, speech doesn't fossilize that well. Uh, and so, uh, <laughs> and, and getting back to your brain circuits, the, the regions on the, on the surface of the brain the speech regions don't make that indentation, so it's hard to see. You know, the people think Broca's area has a surface mark on the brain, but it's controversial. So we don't really know. Uh, Broca's area involved in uh, speech production and, uh, and other complex things about speech. So it had to go from inference. What's, what's interesting and what's perplexing is that of all the vocal learning lineages we talked about in the beginning, the eight vocal learning lineages, uh, in, in, in seven of them, they have multiple species that learn how to imitate sounds multiple songbirds, multiple bats, multiple parrots, multiple cetaceans. Uh, but uh, in, amongst primates, there's only one, or us humans. All right, so, so we know it had to evolve, uh, not the origin of primates some 30 to 50 or so million or more years ago, but it had to evolve since the last split with uh, ch chimpanzees, which is around 6 million years ago. Mo most scientists don't think it happened right after the split of, of, of chimps. They think a lot of scientists thought it was just humans only, that Neanderthals didn't even have uh, human speech. But it turns out that all the genetic differences we're seeing in humans that are associated with vocal learning, we're seeing in Neanderthals as well. And Neanderthals having interbred with humans and seeing some cultural evidence you know, in Neanderthal you know, uh, cave sites I, I'm going to go on the side that I think Neanderthals had spoken language. Who knows if they had it to the same degree we have. So we're going to go back half a million years at least, uh, is to my minimum. 
All right. So somewhere between half a million and six million years ago, uh, vocal learning and spoken language evolved in humans. Do you, I mean, again, we don't have that time machine and we can only do so, so much with questions like this, but um, is there any reason to expect that the first human language would have been comparatively rudimentary? You know, the thing that you hear is that when humans evolved, humans millions, well, a long time ago, sort of phenotypically resemble humans these days. Is that the same to be expected for language or what's the thinking? Yeah, I, I, I think, I think uh, if using non-human animals examples, because like we said, we have multiple species of them. Uh, they're not, all vocal learners are not equal as, you know, even within a group, not all songbirds, not all parrots. And so the evidence that it could evolve in, in a non-linear fashion uh, does come from songbirds and parrots, where amongst parrots, like I said that we have this core and shell song system, but kias, right, uh, parrots in New Zealand and, and Australia who are at the base of the parrot tree, at the early divergence, right, they only have the core song circuit. They don't have the shell. So, so we think, and they're not as good vocal learners as some other parrots. Uh, so we think the shell song system evolved afterwards. And we think, you know, there's evidence looking at the bird family tree, like females seem to have lost the trait in many songbird species of vocal learning. It looks like it evolved in both sexes first. And then as species went away from the equator, the more harsh environments in the temperate zones like New York, away from the equator, uh, females have lost the trait of vocal learning. So it's not like you're always getting better. You can get worse, you know, and so forth, for, for whatever good reasons. But for humans, I'm sorry, this is a long-winded answer, but for humans, I, I would say the, the, the evidence, at least the rudimentary evidence, looks like it probably, we haven't gotten worse, you know, we've just been continuing to get more advanced at this trait. Uh, and, it, and it probably was in some rudimentary fashion, like what you see in songbirds at some earlier state in our last 500,000 years or longer. You know, um, I don't want to derail myself. There's a couple of other, other things that we want to make sure we get to. But this, what you are just saying a minute ago about the females within species losing speech. I mean, what is that the same way as saying that females within species, some of them would, would sort of be suppressing some part of that circuit? That's exactly what it's happening. It's a, it's a suppression. And, and uh, work from... Um, uh, Mark Kanishi, who recently passed away in a, in a graduate student in my lab, Hannah Cho, is showing this more. Uh, now she's doing it more mechanistically at the molecular level. What's happening is that both males and females hatch, basically are born, with the developing vocal learning system, right? And then during this critical period where the males go on to continue the development, the female song system atrophies, the neurons start to die, right? And it's, it's a genetic mechanism that's causing them to die, and it's, it's connected to the sex hormones. Because if you overdose them at this time in their life, in their young age, with estrogen, the females, right, then those neurons will not die, and they'll go on to sing adult, I mean, as adults to sing like the males. And, and, and so that somehow low levels of estrogen are suppressing it. And when we find is that when you make them more, when you stop that, that estrogen suppression, okay, uh, we find not only the song circuit is there in the females as adults, but it has some of the same specialized genes you see in humans and song, in the males. And I, I mean, I, tell me if I'm wrong, but probably that has to do with an energy savings or some type of, you know, saving, I don't know if it's about space, saving space in the brain or, or yeah. making regulation less challenging without all of these other circuits to run through. It's, it's, it's dividing up labor between the sexes in harsher environments. 
you do this and I do that, right? The males learn how to imitate sounds and defend territories, right? And the females don't have to defend the territories, but they are very selective on the male's quality. You know, like the, they all select the mocking, mo mockingbird male that's the best imitator out there and the, and the smartest out there. So their, their auditory systems are even more tuned all right, to uh, uh, listening to those males and then the species where both sexes actually produce learned sounds. All right, human talking and singing. We've been talking a lot about bird singing, but human singing, I mean, some of us like me don't do it very well, but why is it, or is it just sort of my conviction and it's not true, that we can remember words set to music better? Or even poems, like, you know, my graduate students can't remember any of the scientific papers I wrote, but I bet if I transform them into limericks, some part of it might stick. Is, is that true? And, and how does that work? Yeah, it, it is true. Um, and uh, actually, one of the reasons I was, I was thinking one day, if I could really understand how vocal learning works and these songbirds, I can learn how to be a better singer. But uh, <laughs> so, so there's several schools of thought out there. One is that singing and speech are totally different brain circuits. Uh, and there's some evidence to indicate there might be some differences, but I think uh, mostly there's the same brain circuit being used in different ways. Uh, and it's more the dominance of the use of the, of the brain pathway is more right dominant for singing than it, and left dominant for speech. I mean, there is a dominance, everything to the left side for vocalizations, but it's, it's shifted more to the right for, for singing. Uh, but it's a parallel circuit really being used in a similar way is, is, is what I say. So why does singing help you understand things better? One theory is that uh, if you look at all vocal learning species, all of them sing, right? But only a subset of them produce speech-like sounds that are less singing-like, less melodic-like. And so one theory is that uh, for vocal learning, singing came first before speaking. So it's a more ancient trait. Uh, and by being more ancient, uh, using it can help you know, the more recent things are the ones that are harder to, to use than the more ancient ones. And so, so this is why it's thought that singing might help you remember things better. Uh, and whether, that's, whether that's the true mechanism or not, I don't know, but that's one, one theory. It makes sense, and it's consistent with a lot of things. Our, our ancestors, in a sense, had lots of evolutionary practice with the singing approach, and so you know, if we were to do it that way, we can stick. Um, I mean, it sort of still begs the question, I think, why did singing come first? And we may need our time machine again. Maybe there's not an answer. Well, no, you, you have some like Stephen Pinker and others, you know, who would argue that uh, language, like we have in songbirds, uh, was initially selected for mating attraction. So, so this is why, you know, sing, singing, you know, your Jennifer Lopez, your Ricky Martin and so forth, you know, <laughs> you know they, they're sex symbols, right? And, and so... Uh, to, to a certain group of people because, you know, their, their songs really bring on an, an attractive type of emotional response. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to keep belaboring this thing, but that, that mindset implies that the beauty lives in the signal, and that is a bit of a circuitous type of argument, but uh, we don't have time, I think, to talk about the evolution of beauty, so we'll just right. let, the, let that one go. Um, let, let me ask you, let, let's turn the tables and, and ask, what's next for you? Um, I mean, in terms of the vocal learning arena and, and the, the work that you're doing there, what's the thing that you're most uh, excited about? What's the species that you desperately like to work on and for whatever reason haven't been able to do yet? Yeah, so, so two things. What's next is, 
is really testing this hypothesis that these genes that are specialized in the human brain circuits for speech are, are really either duplicating or causing rudimentary circuits to become enhanced uh, for uh, uh, vocal learning and that we can actually recapitulate that in the mouse brain uh, and eventually in non-human primates. Uh, so so that, that's um, there. The other is, you know, can we finally start to learn from non-human animals um, how to understand the, the disorders of brain circuits associated with autism for speech, uh, I mean speech disorder in autism or, or, or brain injury. Uh, and so um, uh, can we actually learn how to repair human brain circuits for speech you know, after some kind of damage or, or some kind of genetic difference in autism. Uh, and by do, to do that, we need to study humans more so than I've been doing in the past. And so, so I'm looking forward to making more direct links between uh, these non-human animals and, and humans. Uh, and I was expecting my colleagues in the, brain, in the neurobiology of language community to do that, but I don't think they read our papers enough or they don't translate uh, the data enough. So, so I'm, I'm collaborating with some of them to do it ourselves. And then, uh, finally on that front, uh, I'd like to know, is there a genetic difference between the really talented singers, okay, and the, the people who say they can't sing so well, you know, or the, the atonal uh, folks, right? Uh, and, and see if, if, this is, if this is all culture, if this is all practice, or is there uh, genetic differences? And uh, that's where the genomes come in. Do we know anything on the morphological or physiological side? I mean, is the larynx especially uh, chock full of uh, sophisticated muscles or? Yeah, actually the brain is kind of, you can think of the brain as a big muscle as well, is that the more you use it, the larger those brain regions become. So some musicians in their auditory cortex, right, they're, they, they tend to have a larger representation of sound in their brain than non-musicians. Uh, and so and if you speak a lot, just like any other muscle, you're going to develop your muscle uh, uh, control better. So there, there is a use and practice uh, enhancement function uh, to speech circuits as, like any other part of the body. One, one other last question. Let's circle back to your first priority on, on the mice again. Is the, is the focus on mice because that's sort of the best system to work on? Or is it the question that sort of you're, you're most able to work on? Because let's say, let me ask a question differently. If you were able to do the work on mice with Coco or some other gorilla or a chimp, would you do that? And, yes, I would. And if, okay, so what would you do with Coco or you know her, her offspring if we had enough gorillas and the ethics were not questionable and all that good stuff? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The ethics, you know, this gets quite ethical if you start. You know, it doesn't seem, people don't seem to be afraid if you can get a mouse to imitate and <laughs> sing like a bird, right? Or like us, right? But if you can get a, a a chimpanzee or a gorilla to imitate and sing like us, that starts to scare people. That's really creepy. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yes. Uh, now are they human? You know, like what kind of protections do you have to do for them? You can't genetically manipulate them, and will they take over the planet like Planet of the Apes? So, you know that that kind of stuff. You know, and it, it is the case. I think once you have vocal learning, it does bring on more advanced behavioral abilities. But I think having spoken language alone doesn't give us alone at least doesn't give us the advanced abilities that we have now in building buildings and weapons and so forth. So, um, but yes, the reason why I would do it is because it, it's a much more closely related species. I think, you know, it's easier to man genetically manipulate a species. If you're going to translate, if you're going to 
make one species more like another, it's easier to do it in the closest relative than to go to some, some rodent you know, that's more than 30 million years removed from a, our common ancestor. And so the primary reason to do it in a rodent is because the genetic tools have been developed for them much more so than any other mammalian species out there. And it, I mean, ethical challenges aside and the lack of tools aside, if let's assume you had the same toolkit, it, would it be easier in the gorilla? I mean, are, are more of the circuits sort of there? Is the pre-existing structure already in place? Is that the same type of argument that you're making about they're like humans, more like humans evolutionarily already? Yeah, I, I would say from a, a biological perspective, because of the close relationship, it might be easier because you, don't, you have to change less in the brain. But uh, practically, in a laboratory sense, it, it would be harder because the generation time. Oh, yeah, you know, a, a mouse, You know, a mouse is already old age by, you know, one, two years old. Uh, you know, so they develop faster, so you can you you get offspring faster, and you can do a lot more experiments in our own lifetime. But you know, for a gorilla and so forth, you have to wait, you know, uh, you know, years for them to become adults, uh, and 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 so forth. You know, so so that's an impracticality. Much outside the the duration of a, a degree or a grant or something like that. Yeah, right, right. That 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 part really wouldn't work. If it takes seven years to become an adult. Yeah, yeah. Um, Eric, so my last question has really been a great conversation. We always like to, to end the show with a chance for you to say what we didn't give you the chance to say. What else would you like to share with the audience that we didn't have to get to? Yeah, what I'm learning uh, in science as in, in lots of other fields is that uh, there's a popular saying out there that you can you kind of overestimate what you can achieve in two years, but underestimate what you can do in 10 years. And... Uh, and now being in, in science for more than 20 years, I've, I've discovered that um, there's some people, there are a lot of people like myself that, that, as you can tell probably from our conversation, that you know, try to think ambitiously. And, uh, be, and I do it because I have fun and because that's what, that's what gets me excited so I won't get bored as a scientist. <laughs> and I know a lot of these crazy things that I'm talking about we won't achieve, or at least in my lifetime, I think that. But... Uh, so, so there's some things that I discovered, like being able to sequence the genomes of many species, or even of all vocal learning species only, I never thought would be achieved in my lifetime, but yet I'm trying to, trying to manipulate a mouse to sing like us, right? Now that the there are actually tools that are there uh, that allow us to do that, that we're actually doing projects of manipulating these brain circuits to be like songbirds or humans, or to sequence the genomes of all vertebrates of all species. And so I, I encourage other scientists out there listening to us, I encourage everybody out there that, you know, really, you, yeah, your short-term goals may be too ambitious, but don't give them up because you may realize them in 10 to 20 years. And if you don't achieve it in your own lifetime, at least you, you've taken steps so that the next generation after you can actually take off from where you left off. And uh, having, a, having a conversation with you is a reminder of this kind of way of thinking for me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. We're an independent podcast, and so you play a huge role in sustaining the show financially. Please consider making a monthly donation to our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. And tell your friends and colleagues about us. 
We hope you'll recommend Big Biology this week and maybe give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. On our next episode, we talk with Herman Ponser, a professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke, about his new book titled Burn. The book, which will be released early in March, discusses the latest research on human energetics and the effects of diet and exercise on our metabolisms. And then there's the energetic piece of it. And I think this is the exciting part that I'm, I'm excited about, uh, which is that all of those changes your body's making to respond to exercise to kind of keep your metabolic energy budget more or less the same all of those adjustments are good for you actually reducing stress reactivity is good for you reducing the immune uh, inflammation response is good for you uh reducing you know high levels of reproductive hormones are actually probably good for you so all of that metabolic management that happens in response to exercise is probably a big reason why it's so darn good for you so you got to do it you absolutely have to do it Thank you to Ruth Dimry for producing this episode. Big Bio interns Ajinkia Dahake, Dana Baxter, and Jordan Greer manage our social media accounts and help us produce the show. And of course, Steve Lane manages the website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear.